Go ahead and grab your Bibles and uh, open them up to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. We've been working through a series on uh, God's glory in our sanctification. Sanctification being a, a biblical term, but a big word that really describes holiness, our spiritual growth. And we've been breaking down the biblical formula in Ephesians chapter 4 for church growth. And this morning we get to really the climax or the goal of church growth. And we've seen a couple of weeks ago that it begins this formula with Holy Spirit unity plus, as we saw last week, Holy Spirit diversity. And what it leads us towards is what we look at this morning, which is Holy Spirit maturity. Growth and maturity is one of the primary objectives that God has for the church. And as we saw last week in, in how God has gifted us and called us together with diversity, it is a declaration of our enemy's defeat and our Savior's conquering and victory. We see this week that one of the primary purposes that God has gifted us is to grow the church corporately together as one unified body. Growth and maturity is incredibly important for the church, and the reason should be somewhat obvious. I mean, imagine for a moment, if you will, giving your two-year-old child the keys and saying to your child, you are now responsible for managing the home and the family business, and by the way, your primary objective is through your efforts to make the family name great. That won't end very well. The results would be catastrophic, there would be total collapse and ruin, and it's really only moments away. But you see, God has given to the church family a mission to make his name great and to display the greatness of his reconciling power and love to the world. That is the church's primary mission. We manifest the love of God to the world around us. We manifest his reconciling power to the world, the power by which he will one day unite all things in heaven and on earth to himself through his blood, through the cross of Jesus Christ. But to truly be effective on this mission and with this goal in mind, the church must grow to a place of maturity. And so Paul, in our passage this morning, he contrasts the picture of an immature child with a mature man to teach us that it is necessary for fruitfulness and effectiveness on this mission to grow up into maturity. We must therefore know what maturity looks like and how it is cultivated. And that's exactly what Paul is going to teach us this morning. So let's read the text together. Let's back up into verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 4, and then we'll move in all the way down through verse 16. Paul has just talked about how he has given the apostles and prophets, evangelists and shepherds and teachers to the church, here it is, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ." 
from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You will hardly find a clearer passage on the purpose of the church in all of Scripture. And here, what we see is that maturity actually has marks or evidences to demonstrate the reality of it. And so this morning, I want us to look at four marks of a mature church. These four marks should characterize every church that is healthy, every church that is on mission for Jesus Christ. And certainly, while we could add more to this list, there can be nothing short of this list. These are four of the primary features that God asks of the church that we must demonstrate if we are going to be effective. And the first one we see in verse 13 is this, Christ conformity. A conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. The church here as a body is supposed to resemble its head, Jesus Christ. And as we saw last week, Paul has made it clear in verses 11 and 12 that the primary role of the leadership of the church, those leadership roles and gifts that he has given to the church, have one primary intention, and that is to foster a greater maturity in the body of Christ. The building up of the body of Christ, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that every part can play its role in building up the whole. You could say that verse 13 essentially says that maturity equals Christ-likeness. In many ways, verse 13 is a summary statement of what the church should look like. We should look like Jesus. Paul explains this pursuit of Christ-likeness by giving us three aspects of it. And in essence, they're really, in some senses, saying the same thing, just a slightly nuanced way. He really tells us that maturity flows first. This is so important to understand. It flows from knowing, trusting, and growing up into Christ. All of our maturity comes from first fixing our gaze upon Jesus. And Paul does that here in verse 13. Look what he says as he breaks this down for us. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. In other words, he says that we are seeking a unified understanding of the faith. That's not implying that we are all saved. That is already inherent in the understanding of the church. This is implying a core set of beliefs that we are held by, that hold us together. This is what Paul has already walked us through in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, where he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is concerned that our unity be built upon a common set of core convictions, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude says. This speaks of the objective truths that we believe, not our subjective experience in coming to faith. This is ultimately, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, what we are unified around. What binds us together in Christ, it is Christ, but it is a common set of convictions. In fact, this may speak most specifically about what Paul says next in verse 13. 
the unity of faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, the core convictions we hold all revolve around this primary focus, the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the glue that ultimately holds us together. He is the the thread that is woven through all of the doctrinal convictions that we believe and hold to and embrace as primary convictions. It is all about Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is concerned that even those of us who have embraced the gospel continue to grow in the knowledge of the Son of God. There is an active, constant, ongoing pursuit of knowing Jesus and knowing the gospel You see, what we believe about Jesus and the gospel are of incredible importance. And after all, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we come and sing about every single week. There's never a week that passes where we don't fix our eyes upon the cross of Jesus Christ in songs and in the preaching of the word of God, in the Lord's table, when we celebrate baptism. All of these things are intended to point us back to what ultimately holds us together. What unifies us is the gospel. Listen, if you're a follower of Christ, that means you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. It means that you believe what the Bible says about Jesus, that he is the son of God, that he came to this earth from the throne room of heaven in his utter perfection and glory, that he lived on this earth a perfect sinless life because we never could, and that he offered himself as a sacrifice, a perfect spotless lamb to take the place of blemished sinners like you and I, and he died upon a cross put to death by the hands of men, but ultimately by the sovereign plan of God. And he paid for the sins of the world. If you're sitting here this morning, you are sitting here in Christ because you have believed that truth, that Jesus Christ was in your place on the cross, that he paid for your sins, and that he marched out of the grave victorious over sin and death, testifying to the reality that God has accepted the full payment for your sins. Amen? Amen. This is the glue that binds us together, and it's so important that we come back to this. If you've been a part of this church since the beginning, you've heard me say this over and over and over again. We never move past the gospel. We only move deeper into the gospel. We always come back to the gospel. This is what ignites our hearts on fire. This is why we are here. This is why we stand in awe of God and we shout for joy and we praise God with passion. It's because what he has done for us, he has rescued us and redeemed us. He has delivered and saved us. And one day we will spend eternity in him face to face. This is the joy that we have to gather together and to unite our hearts around the knowledge of the Son of God. And as we do this, as we dive into the Word of God, which pulls to the forefront and drives into our heart the knowledge of the Son of God, here's ultimately what happens as a result. It moves us in verse 13, you see, to this place where we are to be a mature man. This is the objective. And Paul adds to that, almost elaborating upon it, what does it mean to be a mature man or to have a mature manhood? It means to be moved to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I mean, that's Paul's way of just piling up words to say, don't you see, we are supposed to grow up to look more and more, increasingly more so like Jesus Christ until the day we stand before him and look perfectly like him. But that day's not here yet, right? And if you're like me, if you're honest about where you're at and where the church is at, we still have a long way to go. You know, one of the most precious moments of my week is Sunday mornings when I'm sitting alone in my house. I get up really early on Sunday mornings and I do my own devotional time. I pray over 
the, the, the message that I'm going to be preaching. I do some adjustments, but at, at a certain time every morning, my nine-year-old daughter comes down the stairs. I, I can hear her feet coming down the stairs quietly. And I love it. She's an early riser like me, and she'll just come and she'll sit beside me on the, the stairs, or excuse me, on the couch. And as she knows what I'm doing, she's very sensitive. She just watches me. She quietly watches, and every once in a while she'll, she'll ask questions like, Dad, what, like, you're making some weird faces. What's going on? And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I'm just thinking. I'm just praying. I'm trying to figure this out. And this morning she looks, she's a, she, she looks at me as I, I guess I'm making one of these faces not knowing. And she says, what's the matter, Dad? And I just said, I said, you know, I, I, said, I, I said, I know you pray for me. She's so sweet. She's always praying for me. I said, you know, one of the things you can pray for me is, is that I'm reading this text, and I, I've got to talk to the church this morning about what it means to be mature in Christ, and I just, I look at my own life, and I, I said, I said, you know, I look, and I, I have to preach about things that I know I need work in, and I need to grow in, and I said, you can just, you can just pray for me that I would grow into be, become the mature man of God that, that I need to be, and I, I, just said, I just said to her, I said, look, Kara says, I have a long way to go, <laughs> and she goes, well, Dad, if you have a long way to go, I sure do, too. <laughs> Such innocence in one sense, but I looked at her and I'm like, well, by God's grace, he'll protect you from a lot of the sin that I have committed and I was enjoying in my life, and by God's grace, you'll be one day further down the road than I've ever been, and that's my prayer and that's my desire, and as I stand here and I speak to you about the importance of growing maturity, I want you to know that I feel the weight of this, and I have this deep longing in my heart to grow. I have this deep longing in my heart personally and for our church to continue to grow into the mature man, to the fullness of all that Christ is. Jesus is our perfect standard, both individually and corporately as a church. He is the perfect, complete, mature man, the one we are striving after and the one we are striving to look like. And a healthy church is a church that is conformed increasingly more to the image of Christ. We often think of spiritual maturity as an individual pursuit, but this passage emphasizes our corporate growth together. Now, there is an obvious correlation between individual maturity and corporate maturity. And although it seems that this growth into maturity is primarily from this text a corporate concept, describing the church as a whole, it clearly also depends upon the maturing of individual members like you and I. We talk in this church, one of the, the things we major on is discipleship, and, and the way we define discipleship is really important. Now, I want you to notice this language is very intentional. If you've gone to a Harvest 101, we talk about what it means to be a mature disciple of Christ. That's intentional. We believe this is what the Bible calls us to, and so we define it like this. A mature disciple is somebody who worships Christ, who walks with Christ, and who works for Christ. All three of these components need to be unpacked and explained, but together, they really summarize what it means to be someone who is healthy in the Lord. You'll notice even this morning, we talked about membership and all of the membership commitments. I don't know if you caught this. They're all uh, really geared around every commitment. The first one is, is geared around a worshiping Christ, a, personal, a commitment to do that. The second one is walking with Christ, and the third one is worshiping Christ. And uh, I'm going to encourage you, if you haven't been to Harvest 101, to really dive in deep to what it means to be a mature disciple of Christ. You need to do that. But I want to give you some marks of individual maturity just really quickly to help you think about what this should look like in your life. You see, I think we often associate maturity with external activities. 
You know, so in other words, we, we look at somebody we believe is mature and what we see are external markers, like their regular church attendance, or their Bible reading plan has all the check marks, or they're doing the right things, they look the right way. Now, I don't want to diminish that because those things are important, and the externals are incredibly important because oftentimes, here's what the, we're really after, oftentimes the externals are simply demonstrating what is happening internally, but that's not always the case. It's possible to have all the external markers of Christianity and maturity, but missing the heart of maturity, and that's ultimately what God is after. The heart, the desires, the affections that then produce the behaviors and the way of life that proves the maturity that's happening in your life. And so let me just give you a few quick ways, and again, this is not exhaustive by any stretch, but somebody who is truly mature individually in the Lord is somebody who finds themselves abiding more in Christ. This is John 15 language, abiding in Christ, abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ. And the picture there is of somebody whose desire and affections are to be with Christ, to be with him. This is so vital. This is really the starting place of all maturity. It flows from a longing to experience an intimacy and relationship, an ongoing cultivated fellowship with Jesus, where you're not simply going to the Bible, listen, to get things from God, or you're not simply going to your prayer closet to get things from God, but you're primarily going to the Bible and to prayer and to church to get God. More of him, more of his presence. And, and listen, it's been said like this, look, we become like what we behold, okay? What captures the affections of our hearts, what captures the desires and longings of our hearts is ultimately what will produce the life that follows. And so when it comes to spiritual maturity, those who are truly spiritually mature are those who abide more. They desire more of God, and that is their supreme focus flowing from that, they love more. That's the second mark of maturity, and I'm going to hold off getting into too much detail because this is going to come up again in our passage, but the idea is this, the more they love Christ, the more they abide with him, the more they love Christ. The more they love Christ, the more they want to live for Christ, and the more they live for Christ, the more they love other people. Do you see how that works? This is the mark of a faithful, maturing believer. Thirdly, and this is something that's often overlooked, a mature disciple is somebody, a mature Christian is somebody who finds himself repenting more. Let, let, me, let me walk this out for you. I, I think oftentimes we think repentance is reserved for just the really terrible sins in our life, but I would urge you to consider this, that to be a mature follower of Christ, listen, and this all correlates to abiding in Christ and loving Christ. Here's this picture I want you to have. Listen, the more you see Christ, the more you behold him, the closer you get to him. You've got to think of Christ like a blazing light. Okay, the further we are from Christ, the more in darkness we live, the less clear we see ourselves, right? You can kind of imagine this picture. Now, the more you walk towards the light of Jesus Christ, exposure to him, listen, what happens? The more you come out of darkness and the more the light of his glory begins to pervade your life, the more you clearly see yourself. What happens when you see yourself more clearly? You see your sin, don't you? You see how far you fall short of the glory of God. You see how short of the mark you really are. Listen, a mature person is not somebody who will stand in front of you and act like they've got it all together. I mean, some of the most mature people I know are the ones who will tell you with the greatest amount of humility, I have so far to go. 
And that's not to diminish the fact that in our maturity, we're supposed to call people, as Paul does time and time again, follow me as I follow Christ. Listen, there are, there are things I, I don't, calling us to walk in this kind of lowly manner with our head held low as if we have nothing to offer. What I am encouraging you to see is the more we see ourselves, the more we find that there are things that need to be dealt with before the Lord. It's always interesting to me when you know, I sit with people and we're talking about life, think of accountability in small groups and and you can ask somebody, you tell me what you're struggling with right now. And the response is, well, I can't think of anything. Can I encourage you? That's generally not a good thing. If you can't right now in this moment, stop. If you can't hear this question, what are you most struggling with right now in your life? What area of sin? If you can't answer that on the spot, I would, I would just really, really encourage you to consider this. You have a long way to go in growing in maturity. There should be a greater self-awareness, and so repentance should become more the regular part of life. And here's the, here's the crazy part. The more mature you are, the more you begin to repent of the little things, right? Because the more mature you are, the more godly and more holy you are, the more the little things bug you. Like, oh, man, I did that again. A, a little slip of the word, a little, a little you just, a, a thought that you knew was wrong or ungodly, it begins to convict you, and you immediately stop and say, God, would you forgive me? God, change me and make me the man or the woman that you want me to be. Make me more like Jesus. And then flowing from that, can I just give you this last one? Not only do we repent more, but we rejoice more. The more mature you are, the more you rejoice. The more joy fills your heart. Why? Because the more you find yourself repenting, the more you find yourself enjoying the grace of God. The more you repent, the more you go back to the cross and you say, God, I can't believe you keep forgiving me. I can't believe you forgive me once and for all for all my sins, but every day you shower your forgiveness upon me and that thought thrills the heart of a mature follower of Jesus Christ. Because you walk not, again, not in the guilt and condemnation of your sin, you walk in the freedom and power of forgiveness. And while, again, the focus here is on corporate maturing, I just want to encourage you, for us to grow corporately, there must be a focus on you personally. But I do appreciate what John Stott says to help us balance this. John Stott says, immaturity is individual growth not shared with the body, producing a body that lacks maturity. You see how this works? You only grow in maturity so that you can more greatly contribute to the maturity of the whole. Christ conformity, a church that looks like Jesus. This is a mature, healthy church, and we're not going to meet that perfect standard, but that is what we are striving for. Amen, church? By the grace of God and the power of his spirit within us, he will produce that in us increasingly more so. Second aspect of maturity here, second mark of maturity is doctrinal stability. Christ conformity, first and foremost, that's at the center of it all, and that drives this entire train, okay? The second mark here is doctrinal stability, and you'll see how Paul begins to give this imagery that is so vivid and so powerful, contrasting a child with a mature man. Look at verse 14 with me. He says, so that we become Christ-like, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. The imagery here, it, it is so vivid. Uh, our maturity is intended. Can you catch the gist of this picture? It's intended to safeguard and protect us from instability. 
It's supposed to move us from a place of fragility, like a young child, into a place of stability, like a grown, strong, healthy man. The greatest danger facing the church has never been from physical persecution or governmental restriction, but always, always from doctrinal preservation. The scriptures are laced with warnings against false teachers and false prophets. The New Testament is just loaded. You can hardly turn to a book in the New Testament without warnings about false teachers and false teaching. Jesus himself in Matthew 24, 24 says these words to his disciples. For false Christs, we'll be up there in a second. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform, listen to this, great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Praise God, it's not possible. But can you get the weight that Jesus is putting on the danger that faces the church of Jesus Christ? I mean, there is a relentless assault from the enemy of our souls to snatch people away from the truth, to break apart the church into being this soft, unstable, immature child. Why, why, why? So that people are rendered ineffective The greatest attacks we face are always attacks on how we think. Always, without question, end of, peri- end of sentence, period, full stop. It's always about the way we think. This is why false teaching and false teachers are the greatest warning in Scripture. Why is that, you say? Because of what Paul has been telling us, even in this book and modeling for us, that behavior follows belief. You go after the root and you will infect all of the fruit. And if the root of our behavior is belief, then that is where the enemy wants to attack. That is why he has raised up an army of false teachers, an army of false prophets. You know, a child has limited strength to resist and a limited capacity to comprehend. You'll notice one of the marks of a child is that, especially at a young age, they have a limited ability to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. The very process of maturing physically is connected to an ability to determine right from wrong, truth from error. And an immature Christian has a limited ability to do this spiritually. They're characterized, and I say this graciously, not intended as an insult, but an immature Christian is characterized by ignorance and instability. Easily, as the text tells us, tossed to and fro from the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Can you just picture a child standing at the cusp of the ocean, feet in the water, as a wave comes and just bowls them over? And then picture the scene of the father running in in his strength and stability and scooping up that child, being hammered by the same waves but standing firm. Or a little child that's just blown by the waves as they walk outside in the midst of a storm, knocked over into the dirt and into the muck. And the father scooping that child up in their arms and holding them fast in his strength.
many immature Christians never seem to know their own mind or come to settled convictions about truth. Instead, their beliefs tend to reflect the last preacher they heard or the last book that they read. They easily fall prey to each new theological fad. They simply can't resist. I'm telling you, I'm not going to name any names, but it's amazing to me that I hear people oftentimes say they're listening to one preacher who I know is solid and biblical, and they're like, wow, that's amazing. What they're preaching is amazing. And they'll listen to somebody in the same week who I know is full of hot air, and I'm not even sure is a Christian, is probably a false teacher, and will be able to come to me and say the same thing. Wow, that was so amazing. That, that is a mark of spiritual immaturity and inability to discern truth from error. And false teaching, listen, is slippery. It's intentionally deceptive. It's masked and often shrouded with a, a hint of truth. And so it's easily grabbed a hold of, right? It feels true enough or there's enough truth to grab a hold of you and suck you in. But really, it is loaded with error that is destructive for your soul and your spiritual living. This is why Paul has stressed the leadership roles in the church and the role of teaching and shepherding. I mean, it's no mistake that the roles he lays out, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, that they come right before this section. The entire intention is to make sure that we know as the church that these roles have a very important task to help mature the whole. They feed them the truth. They shepherd them in the truth. They lead them in the truth. And the truth is found where? Where, church? Hold it high. Hold it high. Come on, put your Bibles in the air. This is where the truth is, right here. This is what anchors us. This is what leads us. And anybody you're listening to or reading who is not going back to the Word of God is somebody you should abandon very quickly. A church is never stronger than its commitment to teach and believe the Word of God. Helping the body, listen, this is the role of the leaders of the church, helping the body to sink their roots deep into the central doctrines of the faith. And in Paul's view, the variant teaching, this is one scholar, Clinton Arnold says this, in Paul's view, the variant teachings are not innocent errors on the part of their propagators, but are a part of a strategy that is designed to lead people astray from the truth of the gospel. Behind it, he says, are the fingerprints of the evil one, they're present everywhere. I mean, you'll notice that this is deceptive by its very nature, by every wind of darkness, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. It is so intentional. I mean, false teaching is so awful because it grabs unsuspecting people, leads them down a path of ignorance, and listen, if they're not saved, it traps them in spiritual death. There's some textual debate here, and there are some ancient texts that have been discovered not viable enough to believe that it was original at this point, but some add in this text that this is the result of the evil one. And while it's not here, I think it's safe to assume that Paul believes that's absolutely true. We saw last week the supernatural worldview that was present in the hearts and minds of the biblical authors, and those who were receiving the word of God in, in Ephesus in particular. But Paul writes elsewhere of the devil's work, of Satan's work in false teaching. Listen to what he says in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3 first. He says this, he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 
He says a little later in the chapter, in verses 13 through 15, listen to what he says about false teachers. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Listen, the most dangerous false teaching you should be aware of is that that comes disguised as a kind of Christianity, but is far from the biblical picture of Christianity. And so the call here is that together, as a body of believers, as a family committed to one another and committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, together we fight against error in the church so that we might be mature, in doctrinal stability. Together, we are called to feed each other the truth, and the mark of our maturity flowing from this will be this third point here, relational integrity. Relational integrity, that that is to say, a depth of relationships that is truly biblical, that is after the good of the individual for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. We're not looking for doctrine or for relational superficiality in the body of Christ. We're looking for what the Bible would look to as an, an integrity of relationships that is truly concerned with the truth of God's word and the love of the follower of Christ. You'll notice in verse 15, this is in contrast to the doctrinal instability that can often characterize the immature. Instead, Paul is going to tell us that we should be speaking the truth in love. Notice what it says. Rather, there's the contrast, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Here he rallies us together as a family and he says, listen, this is your responsibility with one another on a regular, ongoing basis in the body of Christ. We speak the truth in love. We grow up in every way into him. This is the goal of speaking the truth in love. I I love you so much. I want you to grow up into Christ. I care about you so deeply. I want you to grow up into Christ, into the mature person that God calls you to be for the glory of Jesus Christ. These are essential ingredients for relational integrity. And I just want you to notice that the context would make it clear that the foundation of the truth we speak is the word of God. It's not our truth. Anybody catch that? Okay, Oprah? Not our truth. It is the truth. The truth of the word of God that anchors our soul, that feeds and nourishes us, that lights our paths. The truth of the word of God drives our relationships in the body of Christ. But it is a truth with love. And it is necessary to have a proper balance of both of these, or or rather not a balance, but a fullness. I, I love the picture of Jesus who was full of grace and truth. I think that's another way of saying a truth and love. He was full of both. It wasn't 50, 50. It was 100%, 100%, always about the truth and always about love. John Stott says that it is better to render this Truthing in love is a difficult you know, Greek word to translate. The translators call it truth in love because truthing in love doesn't, isn't really proper English. 
But it captures, he says, the better sense of the word. Truthing in love is to characterize our relationship. It's indicating, he says, that we are to be both speaking, listen, living and doing the truth together. I love that. I think that's so important. We're not just a community that speaks the truth. We believe it. We know it. We live it. We do it. It captures every part of who we are. And while this is true, again, the context seems to be pointing more to the importance of truth versus error not allowing one another to live in doctrinal error, living in a way that's inconsistent with the truth of God's word. Now, there is a spectrum, isn't there, in all of our lives on where we land between being a truth person and a love person. All right, you know right now if you're a truth person or a love person, don't you? I'm not going to make you raise your hands. But you know, if you had to look at the spectrum, over here is love, over here is truth, you could tell me right now, yeah, I'm kind of more of a love person, or I'm kind of more of a truth person. There are some in the church who can sniff out error a mile away like a bloodhound. You know, their nose starts twitching, their pupils start dilating, every muscle in their body starts kind of going bonkers, they start foaming at the mouth. Ready for battle, and battle they do. And it is so very often more harmful than it is helpful. It's not okay just to love a good fight. But there are others who fall to the other end of the spectrum that are determined to show love at all costs or even prepared to sacrifice truth to maintain some semblance of peace and unity that ultimately ends up being a superficial peace and unity. They never want to address a problem. They run from conflict every opportunity they can. And they essentially define love as tolerance. Can I submit to you that both of these are unbalanced and unbiblical? Again, I'm quoting from Stott. He just has some great things. He could say it much better than I could. John Stott says that truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. Isn't that good? Let me say that again. Truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love, and love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. We are called to hold both of these together in our relationships. We are called to long for this from others. Listen, it should be the longing of our heart to hear truth in love. It should be the longing of our, chart, our hearts to speak truth in love. And I just want to give you three ways that you should be looking to both speak and receive truth and love in your life. Just three simple ways. Again, this is not exhaustive, but maybe this will be helpful for you this morning in putting some legs to this. First, it should be your desire to both speak and receive godly instruction. If you're a follower of Christ and you're in any way longing to look more like Christ and to be mature in Christ, you should long to receive godly instruction. Listen, coming to church in, in the place where we meet every week, this should be a time that you prioritize because you long to hear from God, from his word. You long for your heart and your life to be molded and shaped by the word of God. When you come to church, this should be one of your supreme desires. You should be praying in the mornings. If you're not already, God, I'm walking into your house with your people to hear your voice. God, speak to me. God, instruct me. 
And, and by the way, this takes an incredible amount of humility to walk in and to say, I have things I need to learn and grow in. I need to hear from God because my life isn't aligned perfectly to the will of God. You should be longing to receive it, but loved ones, listen, you should be longing to speak it. In love, you should be longing to teach those that God has put in your sphere of influence. It should be the longing, parents, let me speak to you for a minute. It should be the longing of your heart to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You need to see the importance and the weight of this in your responsibility as parents. You have one primary goal, and that is through all of your love, through all of your provision, through all of your care, it is to point them to Jesus. That needs to be a priority in your home. And if it's not a family that you have, a spouse or children, you are still useful to instruct others. Discipleship in the body of Christ, we're all called to it. God has called you to teach somebody, to pour into somebody what God has been pouring into you through others. Secondly, you should be looking to both speak and receive godly correction. And and this is closely related and yet in one sense distinct from the instruction. The instruction primarily is focused on teaching, but I want you to consider what Paul told Timothy. One of the purposes of the word of God is to exhort, to reprove, and to rebuke, to bring correction. I think one of the sad realities in our sinful fallen condition is that we're very a prideful and unwilling to receive correction from people. And there are particular areas where we struggle to receive correction most. That's normally in those areas we know we're wrong. But the Word of God calls us to be a people who are willing to do the hard things, to have difficult conversations with one another in a loving way, never in a harsh way, in a loving way to pull one another aside and to speak truth and to say, look, this is what I'm seeing, or, or perhaps it's been an, an accountability relationship in your small group where somebody has actually said to you, this is a struggle in my life, where now you have a responsibility when you see them saying, I need to change here, to come alongside and offer some corrective counsel. We need to be willing to believe that we will at times need to be corrected by one another. By the grace of God, God will put people in our lives who will love us enough to come alongside us and say, brother or sister, I love you enough to say that this area in your life is not lining up with the word of God. And I'm, I'm willing to walk alongside. You know what love does? It doesn't just point it out. It says, I'm willing to walk alongside you. I'm willing to help you. I'm willing to pray for you. I'm willing to counsel you. I'm willing to encourage you. I'm willing to pray with you through this. You're not alone. We need to be willing to yield to correction, to be humble enough to receive it when it is given, but we also need to be courageous enough in the body of Christ and the family of God to be willing to give correction where it is needed. If you truly love those in your life, you will not let them continue to walk a path of destruction. Amen? Thirdly, you must be willing to speak and receive godly direction. And by this I I mean... You must be someone who is willing to receive godly counsel, and I'm speaking more specifically in the areas of wisdom, 
You know, it's, it's amazing to me to see how many people live their lives apart from wise counsel. One of the most, I'll tell you this, one of the, honestly, one of the most challenging areas of pastoral ministry is to sit back and watch people make foolish mistakes, knowing that if they would have simply asked somebody more mature than them, if it was a wise idea, they could have really saved themselves a lot of grief and pain. It is so hard to sit back and watch, and, and you, you got to be so careful in, in how you come alongside people, but it is so painful to watch people ruin their lives when they could have avoided it by simply going and seeking wise counsel. You know, the work, book of Proverbs is filled with exhortations to seek wise counsel from people who are more godly and more mature. And by the way, that is a, a really important qualification I need to place on this. People who are more godly and more mature. Take advantage of the spiritual leaders God has placed in your life. Take advantage of the pastors and shepherds. Can you just hear that word again? The shepherds that Paul has talked about. The whole goal is to help provide counsel and direction to help you align the decisions you're making, especially major life decisions. To align those with the word of God so that you're walking in step with the spirit of God and doing what is going to most glorify him and be best for you. I'm so thankful for so many people who do this, but I want to encourage you to take this more seriously in your life. God has placed you. Let's look around. The wealth of wisdom that God has placed around you, the life experience, the godliness of some of the people. I'm looking around at faces. I see some of you are so godly. You love the Lord so much, and you have so much to offer to people in your life. But really, this is, you need to be willing to step up and say things and give direction even when it's not asked. But let me speak to the group of us who maybe struggled to ask for counsel. You think you're putting people out. That is a prideful statement. I don't want to burden you. I know people, uh, people say this all the time, and I, I know their heart is right, but I just, like, I don't want to burden you. I don't want to burden you. You know what my response is this? It's my job to be burdened by you. <laughs> And I mean that in, in, the, in the most spiritual sense of that, that look, look, part of the role that God has given me and the leaders in your life is to bear your burdens with you. It is not, listen, it is not putting me out to hear from you. It is not putting the leadership, the elders of the church, the small group leaders in your life to hear from you and to ask questions or direction or counsel. It is a joy to sit and to see the humility and to prayerfully alongside you seek the will of God. This is the joy of ministry, not the, not the burden in the negative sense. Some of you are on the cusp of making major life decisions that could really, really do great damage to your life if you're not careful. Can I just let this be an encouragement? Seek the godly counsel that God has placed in your life. That is in one sense what they've been given to you for. And see this, all of these things as Paul's means of producing maturity, people who will help us to grow and to know sound doctrine, to help us apply it to our lives. Now, I just want to hit one more kind of qualifier here. So there are some people who believe that this should only be reserved, this kind of counsel, correction, and instruction, that this should only be reserved for those who are in close, close, that's in quotations, use the right way close relationship or friendships. In other words, there are people who say, you don't have a right to speak into my life unless you really know me. You know, like, like Paul qualifies this by saying, you know, you can, you can come alongside and speak the truth in love only if you've known the person for three years. Do you see that there? Only if you're BFFs. Is that still a term? Is that still used? Sorry. The Bible doesn't put qualifications on this. 
Now, now, let me just say this. Look, it is true that the closer and deeper your relationships, the greater leverage you have and ability and opportunity you have to speak truth in love to those around you. And the closer your relationships you have when somebody speaks, the more willing you should be to yield to that counsel, correction, and instruction. But the Bible makes no such qualifications for length of relationship or depth of relationship to speak the truth and love to one another. In fact, I would argue from this passage, it says just the opposite. It actually tells us, this entire passage tells us that we have been brought into relationships already where this is to be the normal role that we play in each other's lives. We are already members of one body united in Jesus Christ, unified by Christ. We are not just good friends in this place. You realize that? We are already called by divine revelation family. <laughs> and this is a part of what we agree to, even in membership. You know, we, we have a membership Sunday this morning. Some of you are like, man, you guys are really strategic. You thought this out. We didn't even plan this, okay? Like, this is, we're way too stupid to plan this kind of stuff. God, in his grace and sovereignty, plans a morning where we're talking about the importance of being in the family of God together, what it means to commit to one another, to be used in each other's lives. God plans to have a membership Sunday where we're reminded in another way of what it means to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. We are committed in the family of God to walking alongside each other for the good of one another and the growth of the body of Christ and the glory of Jesus Christ. This is love. A willingness to speak the truth in a way that is truthful and loving at the same time and we need to hear it in a way that would honor Christ. This is not the role of some of us. This is the role of all of us. And the final mark of maturity captures this perfectly. We are called to mutual activity. Verse 16, Paul says, For from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It is abundantly clear here that Jesus Christ is the focal point. We grow up, Paul says, into him who is the head, into Christ. Christ is the focal point of all that takes place. This kind of comes full circle back to the very first point. It is from him that the body is brought together, held together, and grows together. It is from him that the gifts to be equipped in the first place are given. It is his power at work within us that enables each of us to do the work of ministry that he has designed and equipped us to do. God designed the church so that believers will live together as family and community, each person fulfilling their role. And again, while there has been a strong emphasis in contemporary Christianity on a personal, individual spiritual growth, it must be highlighted again that this can easily be overemphasized at the expense of the corporate emphasis of this passage. John Calvin made this statement. He said, That man is mistaken who desires his own separate spiritual growth. For what would it profit a leg or an arm if it grew to an enormous size? We see guys like that in the gym and we laugh. Paul not only envisions a body of proportional growth, but a body that cannot grow properly without all believers receiving gifted input from all other members of the body. I mean, I just... I just I, I, Turn to the person beside you and just say these words. I'm serious. I need you. 
Now, now look at that same person and say, you need me. There is a lot more joy in many of you in that last one, right? <laughs> but this is the mentality in the body of Christ that we are supposed to have. I, do, I need you. I need you for my own growth. I need you to be built up in maturity. And yes, by the grace of God, you need me too. Not one of you is worthless. Not one of you is invaluable. In fact, just the opposite. God has made you infinitely more valuable than you could have possibly imagined. God has equipped you in such a unique way to play such a special role in the building up of the whole body. And when you come to church, you're not just coming to be a passive spectator, but an active participant. We come expectant of what God has for us, but we also come prepared for how God will use us. And even if it's not in a formal capacity, in a formal ministry position on Sunday, our heart must be in the place every time we gather with the Lord's people where we are saying, God, you have given me gifts. And you have given me as a gift to the church so that the body might be built up in love, growing in maturity, maturity, bringing greater glory to you. You see, so we come into this place, hopefully not just saying, God, what can I get from you or get from others, but God, how can you use me to pray with others, to help when and where there's a need, to build up the body of Christ in whatever capacity the Lord allows there should be an every member ministry in this church, and I'm so thankful for the way so many of you serve so faithfully. I was recalling, I sat and I just, I was praying and thanking the Lord this past week and thinking through the, the, the just faces the Lord was bringing to my heart and mind of, of people who have just given so much to the, the life of this church, and, and my heart is overwhelmed with gratitude to so many who serve so faithfully. And I want to call some of you who are maybe newer or who have just been sitting and in, in warming a seat every Sunday to get on board and to join in with what God is doing here. We need you. But make no mistake about it. Paul's emphasis here is on the head into whom we are to grow and from whom the body grows with each part when it is working properly. The focus here is for sure on the initiative and work of our head, Jesus Christ. He is the one who provides sustenance. He is the one who is knitting us together. He is the one who is empowering every act of service. And he enables the body to make its growth so that it builds itself up in love. The growth that Paul envisions is multifaceted and his principal concern is that it grows in love. Do you notice how that verse ends? It builds itself up in love. Love is the most conducive atmosphere in which the growth takes place, but it is also the goal of Christian maturity. You say, how do I know I'm ultimately mature? Is there growth in love? This is how we check the pulse of our own spiritual lives. This is how we check the pulse of the spiritual life of the church. We, we look at the love displayed. Is there greater and increasing love for God? And is there greater increasing love for one another? So why is that? Why is it that he's so concerned about our love for one another? It's very simple because the way we love one another is ultimately a reflection of how we love God. Just listen to the words of Jesus. John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is my commandment, John 15, 12, that you love one another as I have loved you. John 15, 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So the words of Jesus. And you see, this passage tells us that we should be deeply concerned with church growth, the kind that fosters unity through diversity resulting in maturity. And that maturity looks like Christ conformity. It looks like doctrinal stability. It looks like relational integrity. And it looks like mutual activity. And the soil for this kind of maturity is love. Love for one another, yes, but that love only comes when we have hearts that are fixed upon loving Jesus Christ. We are called, after all, to grow up into Him, who is the head, into Christ. All of our growth, all of our unity, all of our diversity, and all of our maturity ultimately flows only from Him. So in the end, He is what we need. He is what we need to be who he has called us to be.